uniform, clammy and uncomfortable. He marched in solitary silence, listening to his men chatter, and Lieutenant Robert Knowles and Sergeant Patrick Harper, who both would normally have sought his company, let him alone. Lieutenant Knowles had commented on Sharp's mood, but the huge Irish sergeant had shaken his head. There's no chance of cheering him up, sir. He likes being miserable, so he does, and the bastard will get over it. Noel shrugged. He rather disapproved of a sergeant calling a captain a bastard, but there was no point in protesting. The sergeant would look innocent and assure Knowles that the captain's parents had never married, which was true. And anyway, Patrick Harper had fought beside Sharp for years and had a friendship with the captain that Knowles rather envied. It had taken Knowles months to understand the friendship, which was not, as many officers thought, based on the fact that Sharp had once been a private soldier, marching and fighting in the ranks, and now, elevated to the glories of the officers' mess, still sought out the company of the lower ranks. Once a peasant, always a peasant, an officer had sneered, and Sharp had heard, looked at the man, and Knowles had seen the fear come under the impact of those chilling, mocking eyes. Besides, Sharp and Harper did not spend off-duty time together. The difference in rank made that impossible. But still, behind the formal relationship, Knowles saw the friendship. Both were big men, the Irishman hugely strong, and both confident in their abilities. Knowles could never imagine either out of uniform— it was as if they'd been born to the job, and it was on the battlefield where most men thought nervously of their own survival. The Sharp and Harper came together in an uncanny understanding. It was almost, Noel thought, as if they were at home on a battlefield, and he envied them. He looked up at the sky, at the low clouds touching the hilltops either side of the road. Bloody weather. Back home, sir, we'd call this a fine day. Harper grinned at Knowles, the rain dripping off his shako, and then turned to look at the company, who followed the fast-marching figure of Sharp. They were straggling a little, slipping on the road, and Harper raised his voice. Come on, you Protestant scum! The war's not waiting for you! He grinned at them as he shouted, proud they had outmarched the rest of the regiment, and happy that, at last, the South Essex was marching north to where the summer's battles would be fought. Patrick Harper had heard the rumours, everyone had, of the French armies and their new commander, but Patrick Harper did not intend to lose any sleep over the future, even though the South Essex was pitifully under strength. Replacements had sailed from Portsmouth in March, but the convoy had been hit by a storm, and weeks later rumours came of hundreds of bodies washed ashore on the southern Biscay beaches, and now the regiment must fight with less than half its proper number. Harper did not mind. At Talavera, the army had been outnumbered two to one, and tonight in the town of Celorico, where the army was gathering, there would be women in the streets and wine in the shops. Life could be a lot worse for a lad from Donegal, and Patrick Harper began whistling. Sharp heard the whistling and checked his impulse to snap at the sergeant, recognizing it as pure irritation, but he was annoyed by Harper's customary equanimity. Sharp did not believe the rumours of defeat, because, to a soldier, defeat was unthinkable. It was something that happened to the enemy, yet Sharp despised himself, because, 
like a walking nightmare, the remorseless logic of numbers was haunting him. Defeat was in the air, whether he believed it or not, and as the thought came to him again, he marched even faster, as if the aching pace could obliterate the pessimism. But at least, at long last, they were doing something. Since Talavera, the regiment had patrolled the bleak southern border between Spain and Portugal. And it had been a long, boring winter. The sun had risen and set, the regiment had trained, they had watched the empty hills, and there had been too much leisure, too much softness. The officers had found a discarded French cavalryman's breastplate and used it as a shaving bowl. And to his disgust, Sharp had found himself taking the luxury of hot water in a bowl as a normal daily occurrence. And weddings. Twenty alone in the last three months, so that miles behind, the other nine companies of the South Essex were leading a motley procession of women and children, wives and whores, like a travelling fairground. But now, at last, in an unseasonably wet summer, they were marching north to where the French attack would come and where the doubts and fears would be banished in action. The road reached a crest, revealing a shallow valley with a small village at its centre. There were cavalry in the village, presumably summoned north, like the South Essex, and as Sharp saw the mass of horses, he let his irritation escape by spitting on the road. Bloody cavalry, with their airs and graces, their undisguised condescension to the infantry. But then he saw the uniforms of the dismounted riders and felt ashamed of his reaction. The men wore the blue of the King's German Legion, and Sharp respected the Germans. They were fellow professionals, and Sharp, above everything else, was a professional soldier. He had to be. He had no money to buy promotion, and his future lay only in his skill and experience. There was plenty of experience. He had been a soldier for seventeen of his thirty-three years, first as a private, then a sergeant, then the dizzy jump to officer's rank and all the promotions had been earned on battlefields. He had fought in Flanders, in India, and now in the peninsula, and he knew that should peace arrive, the army would drop him like a red-hot bullet. It was only in war that they needed professionals like himself, like Harper, like the tough Germans who fought France in Britain's army. He halted the company in the village street under the curious gaze of the cavalrymen. One of them, an officer, hitched his curved sabre off the ground and walked over to Sharp. Captain? The cavalryman made it a question because Sharp's only signs of rank were the faded scarlet sash and the sword. Sharp nodded. Captain Sharp, South Essex. The German officer's eyebrows went up. His face split into a smile. Captain Sharp, Talavera. He pumped Sharp's hand, clapped him on the shoulder, then turned to shout at his men. The blue-coated cavalry grinned at Sharp, nodded at him. They'd all heard of him, the man who had captured the French eagle at Talavera. Sharp jerked his head towards Patrick Harper and the company. Don't forget Sergeant Harper and the company. We were all there. The German beamed at the light company. It was well done. He clicked his heels to Sharp and gave the slightest nod. Lossow, Captain Lossow, at your service. You going to Tel Rico? The German's English was accented, but good. 
His man, Sharp knew, would probably speak no English. Sharp nodded again. And you? Lossal shook his head. The Corps, patrolling. The enemy are getting closer. They will be fighting. He sounded pleased, and Sharp envied the cavalry. What fighting there was to be had was all taking place along the steep banks of the River Coa, and not at Celerico. Lossau laughed. This time we get an eagle, yes? Sharp wished him luck. If any cavalry regiment were likely to break apart a French battalion, it would be the Germans. The English cavalry were brave enough, well-mounted, but with no discipline. English horsemen grew bored with patrols, with picket duty, and dreamed only of the blood-curdling charge, swords high, that left their horses blown and the men scattered and vulnerable. Sharp, like all infantry in the army, preferred the Germans because they knew their job and did it well. Lossard grinned at the compliment. He was a square-faced man with a pleasant and ready smile, and eyes that looked out shrewdly from the web of lines traced on his face by staring too long at the enemy-held horizons. Oh, one more thing, Captain. The bloody provosts are in the village. The phrase came awkwardly from Lossar's lips, as if he did not usually use English swear words, except to describe the provosts, for whom any other language's curse would be inadequate. Sharp thanked him and turned to the company. You heard, Captain Lossau, there are provosts here, so keep your thieving hands to yourselves. Understand? They understood. No one wanted to be hung on the spot for being caught looting. We stop for ten minutes. Dismiss them, Sergeant. The Germans left, cloaked against the rain, and Sharp walked up the only street towards the church. It was a miserable village, poor and deserted, and the cottage doors swung emptily. The inhabitants had gone south and west, as the Portuguese government had ordered. When the French advanced, they would find no crops, no animals, wells filled with stones or poisoned with dead sheep, a land of hunger and thirst. Patrick Harper, sensing that Sharp's mood had lightened after the meeting with Lossar, fell into step beside his captain. Nothing here to loot, sir. Sharp glanced at the men stooping into the cottages. They'll find something. The provosts were beside the church, three of them mounted on black horses and standing like highwaymen waiting for a plump coach. Their equipment was new, their faces burned red, and Sharp guessed they were fresh out from England, though why the horse guard sent provosts instead of fighting soldiers was a mystery. He nodded civilly to them. Good morning. One of the three, with an officer's sword jutting from beneath his cloak, nodded back. He seemed, like all of his kind, to be suspicious of any friendly gesture. He looked at their green riflemen's jackets. There aren't supposed to be any riflemen in this area. Sharp let the accusation go unanswered. If the provost thought they were deserters, then the provost was a fool. Deserters did not travel the open road in daylight, or wear uniforms, or stroll casually up to provosts. Sharp and Harper, like the other eighteen riflemen in the company, had kept their old uniforms out of pride, preferring the dark green to the red of the Lion battalions. The provost's eyes flicked between the two men. You have orders? The general wants to see us, sir, Harper spoke cheerfully. 
A tiny smile came and went on the provost's face. You mean Lord Wellington wants to see you? As a matter of fact, yes. Sharp's voice had a warning in it. But the provost seemed oblivious. He was looking Sharp up and down, letting his suspicions show. Sharp's appearance was extraordinary. The green jacket, faded and torn, was worn over French cavalry overalls. On his feet were tall leather boots that had originally been bought in Paris by a colonel of Napoleon's Imperial Guard. On his back, like most of his men, he carried a French pack made of ox hide, and on his shoulder, though he was an officer, he slung a rifle. The officer's epaulettes had gone, leaving broken stitches, and the scarlet sash was stained and faded. Even Sharp's sword, his other badge of rank, was irregular. As an officer of a light company, he should have carried the curved sabre of the British Light Cavalry, but Richard Sharp preferred the sword of the heavy cavalry, straight-bladed and ill-balanced. Cavalrymen hated it. They claimed its weight made it impossible to parry swiftly. But Sharp was six feet tall and strong enough to wield the thirty-five inches of ponderous steel with deceptive ease. The provost officer was unsettled. What's your regiment? We're the light of the South Essex. Sharp made his tone friendly. The provost responded by spurring his horse forward so he could see down the street and watch Sharp's men. There was no immediately apparent reason to hang anyone, so he looked back at the two men, and his eyes stopped with surprise when they reached Harper's shoulder. The Irishman, with four inches more height than Sharp, was a daunting sight at the best of times, but his weapons were even more irregular than Sharp's big sword. Slung with his rifle was a brute of a gun, a seven-barreled squat menace. The provost pointed. What's that? Seven-barreled gun, sir. Harper's voice was full of pride in his new weapon. Where did you get it? Christmas present, sir. Sharp grinned. It had been a present given at Christmas time from Sharp to his sergeant, but it was obvious that the provost, with his two silent companions, did not believe it. He was still staring at the gun, one of Henry Knox's less successful inventions, and Sharp realized that the provost had probably never seen one before. Only a few hundred had ever been made for the Navy, and at the time it had seemed like a good idea. Seven barrels, each twenty inches long, were all fired by the same flintlock, and it was thought that sailors, perched precariously in the fighting tops, could wreak havoc by firing the seven barrels down onto the enemy's crowded decks. One thing had been over.